Tonight we're going to return to our study of the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. If you remember, this is the time after God had left the people of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt and before God had led them into the promised land of Canaan. So we're in that time in between, a time of transition, a time of living on the edge. And where do we as people learn the best? Not when we're comfortable and not when we've reached our goal. We learn our best when we're out of sorts, thrown off, of certain of what's next. It's there that we learn the most about ourselves and what's really important. Has anyone ever done this? No. Raise your hand. You have? A couple of people? Beautiful. I have too. About four years ago, I went skydiving sky in Monterey with a couple of coworkers. And honestly, I don't know about you guys, but the scary part is not when you're falling from a plane at 125 miles an hour. The scary part is the part in between. After you've decided to abandon the safety of the ground and boarded that tiny plane, and before you're standing at the door of the plane and getting ready to step into nothingness. The scary part is during that ride up in the plane when you second-guess your decision. Was this a good idea? There are so many things that could happen right now. The plane could run out of gas. Or the wing could fall off. The parachute could fail to open. Or actually, it could have a hole in it. There probably is a hole in it. I didn't pack this thing. And wait, who's this guy who's strapped to me right now? Where did he get his skydiving credentials? Is that diesel smell, a fuel I smell? Did this pilot have anything to drink? Or is he living out some crazy Top Gun fantasy by taking the plane off almost vertically as soon as he took off? Is it too late to turn back? Oh no, it's time to jump. Can I just sit in the plane and fly back down? I mean, the pilot isn't that bad. Wait, my... My life is flashing before my eyes. Why, why did I steal those $5 from my mom's wallet when I was 10? Why didn't I ask Julie Chan to the prom? Uh, what? Stand up and walk to the door? Uh, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. I'm looking down, and there's nothing below me for 12,000 feet. This was a bad idea. It's on the edge, in the land in between, between the already and not yet, that you start to learn about who you really are and what's really important to you. The thing is, as a novice skydiver, you really don't get to choose what's happening. You are strapped to the chest of an experienced skydiver whom you just met. He packs the parachute. He checks the straps. He walks you into the plane. He gets you into position in front of the open door to dive out. He jumps out of the plane. You're stuck to him. He pulls the parachute. Maybe eventually when you have experience, you'll be able to take all those actions and make those decisions for yourself. But in the meantime, you're putting your trust in the hands of someone you barely know. It's an issue of trust. This is what Israel is experiencing and learning, though, very slowly during their time in between. So tonight we're going to learn about the story of Korah's rebellion found in chapter 16 and 17 of the book of Numbers. For the sake of time, we're going to skip around a little bit, but we're going to end on this question. Where do you set apart your people for God? So start to think, who are my people? We begin with number 16, verses 1 to 3. Four men from the community led by a man named Korah have been talking about their situation. They used to be in a land flowing with milk and honey, Egypt. And they've been told that God is taking them to another land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan. But right now, they are in the wilderness in between. Camping in semi-permanent tents, eating manna and quail and not much else being pushed around by nearby nations, and getting sick of it. Despite God's supernatural interventions, they're not convinced that they shouldn't be in Canaan already. One day, these four men gathered 250 chiefs, well-known men from the nation of Israel, 
And together, these 250 or so men stand before Moses and Aaron, and they say, You have gone too far, Moses, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? At this point in the story, Moses does two things. First, he says specifically to the ringleader Korah, Look, we're family. You, me, and Aaron, we're all from the tribe of Levi. We're all priests. We're all set apart for God. You know better than to do this right now because, you are challenging our, because you're not challenging our leadership. You're challenging God's leadership. This is an echo of the sibling rivalry between Moses, Miriam, and Aaron from a couple of chapters back that Pastor Danielle preached about a few weeks ago. It's a push for power within the family. That's the first thing. The second thing is verse 6. Moses says, Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. In other words, Moses says to 250 chiefs of Israel, Look, you might be right. Why are Aaron and I special among this community? Let's take your case directly to the Lord. Tomorrow morning, y'all should come with censers. Wait, what's a censer? Yeah. Well, here's a crude one I made up. <sighs> Looks kind of like this. And so, what you do is you place lit coal, or in our circumstance, we're going to put something else besides coal to create a facsimile of lit incense. So you put coal inside this space. And you cover it with incense. So incense is a sweet-smelling perfume that in a lot of different cultures is used as an offering to God because that sweet-smelling scent goes up to their deity. So essentially, this is a mobile fire pit. It's a mobile altar. And then everywhere I take it, people and objects are being sanctified for God. And this is the role of the priest— to come and sanctify the people for God. Don't worry about that. <laughs> so Moses tells Korah and his fellow rebels, bring your censers to the tents of the Lord tomorrow, and let's let the Lord show who he's chosen to lead us. Moses is essentially saying, oh, not that. Moses is essentially saying, you say you are set apart for God, so why don't you try acting like it? Bring your censers tomorrow, try playing the role of a priest, and let's see if God replaces us with you. Well, after more back and forth and more grumbling, the 250 men appear, all of them holding their censer burning with incense. And immediately this creates a problem. In Exodus 30, God tells Moses that no one should offer incense before the tents of the Lord unless God, quote-unquote, authorizes it. These censors are meant to sanctify and honor for God, but honestly, these men want the status. They want the privilege of standing there. So believing themselves to be just as set apart as Moses and Aaron, they stood there, 250 of them, censors in hand, awaiting God's response. And God responded, Separate yourselves from them, from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. God isn't exactly happy with the ringleader's takeover attempt, no matter how democratic it might seem, and he's ready to take them out. And he's not just talking about taking out the ringleaders. He's going to take the entire nation out. He's going to destroy all of them. Moses and Aaron aren't happy with these men either, but these two men challenge God's wrath, 
and they change his mind. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with the entire congregation? God hears this, and he listens. He chooses not to punish the entire nation, but only the ringleaders. He opens the earth below these men and their entire families. They fall in, and the earth swallows them whole. And God's not done. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. This is the same punishment that God enacted against the sons of Aaron for the same exact crime in Leviticus 10. God sends out fire to consume them, and they burn to ashes. Immediately after, however, God gives an order. Scatter those ashes among these men now that they are holy. And now, now that they are holy, they, they actually become, their bodies have become burnt offerings to God. And so now take those censers, these censers, these 250 censers that those men carried, and hammer them into plates. And put these plates on the altar as a warning to anyone else who comes along. What you want and what God wants for you might not be the same exact thing. So, that's what Moses did. And, of course, the people of Israel heeded that warning. They saw how God would supernaturally discipline their people. Of course, they learned that what God does is for their benefit, even if they don't understand it. Of course, they learned to love God and follow him in all their ways, and they never challenged God again. The end. Nope. After they had... All they had seen, the people of Israel challenged God's chosen leaders the very next day. The people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. And that is the leader selected from among us, not you two guys. And when the congregation had assembled Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tents of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. The day before, when God threatened to destroy the whole nation of Israel, Moses and Aaron begged that God be merciful to the nation for the sins of its leaders. And now the nation as a whole had turned against God. The entire nation had decided that we knew better than what God wanted. And Moses and Aaron knew that they couldn't talk God out of it this time. So this time, Moses said, Take your censer. And put the fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took the censer and went among the people, sprinted to the middle of the people in the midst of the congregation and stood there. And as he got there, the plague stopped. But not before people had died. Not just one or two. 14,700 people died before Aaron got to the center to sanctify the people. This is heavy. Now, after so many lives have been lost, God sought to answer the question of leadership once and for all. So, the following chapter, God called a leader from each tribe. Each would... Oh, 
uh, write their name on a walking staff, a tool of shepherds and a symbol of leadership, along with Aaron's staff. And Moses would place all 13 staffs in the tents of the Lord. And so on the next day, Moses went to the tent of the testimony and behold, he actually, sorry, before he did that, he took those staffs, all 13 of them, and walked over and placed them in the tents of meeting. And the next day when he returned, one of the staffs had been changed. The staff of Aaron from the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. And the Lord said to Moses, put that staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. And of course, the people of Israel saw this, and they heeded this warning. Of course, they saw how God would supernaturally discipline his people. They learned that it was God's role to select the people, the leaders for them, not their job. They learned that everything that God did was for their benefit, even if they didn't understand it. And of course, they learned to love God and follow him in all their ways, and they never challenged God again. The end. Nope. This pattern of challenging God feeling his wrath or his absence, having a leader come in and intercede, experiencing a punishment, then being given supernatural reminders of that hard-won lesson. And forgetting the lesson. This pattern continued not only throughout the uh, Israelites' time in Egypt, but for hundreds of years afterwards. Now I'd like to ask you two questions that arise from this entire narrative. Number one, why did God choose to kill all these people? And this is going to be a constant topic that we're going to discuss in the book of Numbers. We've already addressed it. Some of the other pastors have addressed it already. But you see this and you think, isn't God a God of compassion? Isn't he a God of love? Why does he appear so spiteful and unforgiving? Honestly, I don't know. There's no justification that I could offer that would possibly adequately answer this question in everyone's mind. And people much smarter than you and me have argued about why for centuries. But I have heard one possible explanation for it. The punishment that the people receive are based upon the ramifications of the crime for the whole community. Let me explain. Korah and his leaders were trying to overthrow the God-chosen, God-inspired, and God-led leaders of the community. If they had taken control, what might they have done? they probably would have brought the people back to Egypt. Through the books of Leviticus and Numbers, they were already comparing their discomfort in the desert to the bondage in Egypt. And they preferred to be slaves in a place of abundance rather than seemingly wander aimlessly in the desert. And the probable result of this rebellion, the promises that God made to their forefather Abraham would not be fulfilled by Israel. And Israel would not be the nation chosen to show the world that there was a new way to live. In other words, the stakes were massive, not just for a few of the people or for the entire nation, but for all of creation. God was betting big on the people of Israel. Korah and his leader's short-sightedness about the pain of their present would have led to Israel's unrealized potential in the future. But what about the 14,700 people killed by plague? Was their failure to understand and heed God's warning deserving of such a high price? Again, I don't know. But I also know I don't know the whole story. And I do know 
that we might make the mistake of characterizing God by looking at this one story of rebellion in isolation. We get some insight into God's thinking by looking at one of the Psalms. Psalm 106 is a summary of Israel's wandering the wilderness and the lessons that they failed to learn, including the events tonight that we've discussed. After God delivered the Israelites in the Exodus, they believed his words. They sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. And the psalm goes on to list Israel's failures for the next 900 years, worshiping other gods, intermarrying with people who would draw them away from God, committing human sacrifice of their children to these other gods, submitting to other nations out of fear. What if you were a parent and your child made a mistake that hurt himself? Would you discipline him so that he would learn to avoid that mistake? But what if that child continued to make the same mistake over and over and over again? But now the effects of that mistake were being compounded so that the child was not only hurting himself, but also those around him. Would you continue to discipline him in the same way that doesn't seem to be effective? Or would you ramp it up? Now, what if you weren't the parents, but we were watching a parent discipline a child in a way that seemed relatively harsh? Would you think that that parent was overreacting? What if you found out that many times the parent had tried to teach this lesson to this child and the child still hadn't learned and now takes that wisdom into adulthood or takes that lack of wisdom into adulthood where the effects of his behavior compounds again and again and again. He hurts not just himself, but his family and his community, his loved ones and strangers, and he's passing on this mistake to his children and to their children and to their children. Knowing all this, How would you judge that parent's discipline of that child in that single instance that you witnessed? We get this glimpse of God's purpose also in Psalm 106. Many times, over and over, he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes over and over again and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. If you look at any single episode in the story of God in Israel, it might seem that God is cruel and vindictive. If you look at the entirety of the story and realize that God knows the whole story from the beginning and how everyone's going to act in that situation, you can start to figure out why he was so extreme. Again, I'm not saying that I can easily reconcile God's behavior here with the loving and patient and just God that I know him to be. As parents know... Mercy and justice are both expressions of love, even if it doesn't always make sense. The second question that I think arises from this entire narrative is, why were Moses and Aaron willing to go above and beyond for the people of Israel? The first thing is, Moses never really wanted this job. At one point, he was so frustrated with the leadership, as a favor, he asked God to strike him dead so he wouldn't have to deal with the community's criticism anymore. Aaron's a little bit of a tougher issue because the Bible doesn't offer as much insight into his thinking as they do with Moses. However, Aaron was an 83-year-old man at the start of the Exodus. 
and the job of high priest required a lot of physical, mental, and emotional exertion. He saw his sons die for breaking the strict code set by God and had to bite his tongue and accept it. So Aaron probably wasn't super enamored with the trappings of leadership either. So why did they continually advocate for this community when, the, when God constantly threatened to start over? I'll, I'll just, we'll wipe them clean. We'll wipe the slate clean, and we'll grab a whole new set of people. You'll be their leader. We'll start over, but let's get rid of these folks that will not listen to me. I think we can see why Moses and Aaron kept advocating in this final episode with the censors. Because Moses and Aaron didn't even try to argue with God when he sent the plague. It was, there was no, wait, God, no, don't do it. God just sent it, but they knew because of their insights, being with God, seeing what he had been doing throughout this time, being in that close proximity to him, they knew how he was thinking. And because of that insight, Aaron sprints to the center of the congregation with that sensor of burning incense because they know from their experience that God will recognize this act of intercession. He will remember that the people are his and he will choose to show them mercy. I think Moses and Aaron recognized three things. First, like all of us, as much as our own people sometimes hate us or are annoyed with us or don't want to be around us, we still love them. And they still love their people. They were family. Second, due to the mistakes they had learned and the lessons they had learned from being in leadership, they realized there was nobody else there that was better suited for the job. And third, because no one else had ever been chosen to serve as God's priests, only they would be allowed to bear that responsibility. They could not pass that on. So what do we take away from this? Well, according to the second chapter of Peter's first letter, through Christ, you, me, we, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Through Christ, we are priests. We have been appointed and we have been sanctified. And now we are called to sanctify the space which we enter and the people that we encounter for God. Remember that our highest calling is to love God with all of our hearts and with all of our soul and with all of our might and to love our neighbor as ourself. That calling never goes away. It is always present. But how we carry that out, how we love our neighbor, looks different with every person we encounter and in every place we go. Christians in general have a tendency to set our jobs and our vocations in a specific hierarchy of prestige. It looks a little bit like this. The poor are at the top because Jesus said, theirs is the kingdom of God. And that's exactly how you should interpret it, right? So, uh, Overseas missionaries are next because they sacrifice everything to move to another land. And they bring the gospel of Jesus to people there. That's awesome. I couldn't do that. Next are pastors, clergy, chaplains, and vocational ministers because they forego income. <clears throat> I'm kidding. Uh, forego income and family life to minister to their communities. And then next after that are nurses, teachers, caregivers in general, because they do the same, but they get paid a little more. And of course, money's a bad thing in God's economy, right? Next are blue-collar professionals, working men and women, because their income is earned off of their labor, blood, sweat, and tears. And obviously, that's close to God's heart. Last on this list is everyone else. Businessmen, lawyers, doctors, white-collar professionals overall. 
Sure, they might love their families and contribute their time, talent, and treasures to the communities, but their work is not doing anything specifically, specifically towards building God's kingdom on earth. So, eh. But then, in the secular world, it's completely the opposite. The people who are at the top are what the world aspires to, in part because of the money and the prestige that our society gives to those roles. The people at the bottom, well, it's good for them because they're doing the work that we can't do. I mean, we can't just go and share the gospel somewhere without hurting our family or our friends or our desired lifestyles or career or a bottom line. So we in the church tend to set up these two hierarchies and say, well, we need to find a balance somewhere and just ask God for forgiveness otherwise because we can't possibly do both. It's impossible to satisfy God and man. And we're absolutely wrong. This is the hierarchy of the kingdom of God under construction. It's flat. God works equally in all spaces. Everyone can please God where they are. This person is not doing something greater than this person. That person does not have to go further than that person. It's not about forcing the secular and the spiritual into the secular. It's not about escaping the secular to live in the spiritual. It's not about adding some spiritual activity to your life that's already packed with a bunch of secular activities. It's about recognizing that the Spirit of God lives and breathes in all places. As a priest, you are called to love and serve the people you already live with and breathe with and work with and play with and celebrate with. We're often afraid that we don't have the right amount of passion, empathy, wisdom, ability, theological training, or plain old faith to start the work of God. We think we might need to be in the right role or the right school, have the right ministry, the right location, or even be, have the right circumstances to even think about doing this work. But the truth is the work is already happening. God is already doing something right where you are. He was working in that community before you showed up. He's working in that community after you leave. In this land in between, right now, where you're there with them, He's working in ways that you and I cannot see and can see. He's shaping and growing and guiding people and circumstances all around us. Everyone, everyone you see in life is always in a land in between. In some aspect of their lives, everyone has just left somewhere and is heading somewhere else. The last time you were at In-N-Out, and the next time you'll be at In-N-Out. The time when your baby was learning to talk, and the time when your baby will be leaving for college. The time when your uncle was last sober. And the time when your uncle will be sober again. Everyone is in this in-between space in some shape or form. And as priests, we're called to show them that God is there, even if they can't see his presence. So the question is not, God, where do you want me to serve you? The question is, God, I'm here, and you're here. How should I join you in your work in this place? And I struggle with this all the time. If you don't know my story, I worked for Yahoo as a content analyst for five years in the 2000s. And I appreciated the work. It was fun. But then I accepted a role as a local church's children's ministry director, where I worked with Pastor Danielle and Pastor Kevin and Pastor Marcus, and Pastor Tina and Kendra and Kwame and Sue Ann and Mel, and Pamela, Debbie, Fulgence, Rob, Sarah Grace, Jason, Kat, Olivia, Rachel, Ezekiel, Naomi, all these people that are at this church. I worked with them in the past. And I loved being with them. 
But I didn't just appreciate the work. It was them. I felt like I was making a real, visceral difference for the kingdom. But then I went off to L.A. to finish up my seminary degree. And then I returned to my content analysis team at Yahoo. I've been back at Yahoo for four years now. And there I crunch numbers. I send emails. I sit in meetings. I manage projects. And I wonder why I'm doing what I'm doing there and doing this unfulfilling thing. And every Friday, I sit in a four-hour meeting in a stuffy conference room, crunching numbers alongside coworkers. But because of their proximity to me and my proximity to them, they've shared with me some of their joys and struggles. To my right is a coworker who feels uncertain about her role in work, and she feels disconnected from the rest of the team. Next to her is a coworker who just sent her son to college and is worried how he's now being treated as an out gay person. Next to her is a coworker struggling to stay awake after another restless night with his infant son. I look around and I realize they are the, they are the reason that God wants me here. I'm not properly equipped to minister to all of them, and I know I'm going to try to avoid talking to them just so I can get my work done. <laughs> but I can't ignore one thing. God's at work with these people. And the opportunity to love them does not exist outside this meeting room. So I carry my sensor in the midst of that conference room, talking about where they can find their joy and hearing about their disappointments. They are God's beloved, and that's why I'm there. There's another person in that room sitting off to my right in those meetings that I didn't mention, but uh, she's a good friend and a sister in Christ. She's the director on the team. And her job is to build relationships with people, and she's really good at it. She speaks directly but kindly with people, and she gains their respect. And she has a loving husband, an engineer who spends long hours at work, but makes time for the family. And she has two teen daughters who she helps try to navigate the worlds of junior high and high school. She's trying to build relationships with her neighbors and connect them with each other. And after a hard scrabble childhood and a career of hard work, she and her husband earn enough to live very comfortably in the Bay Area. And she shares those earnings with charities and programs, serving people throughout the country. And what does she always tell me? I'm not supposed to be here. I should be going to seminary or living, giving everything I have and ministering to people in the inner city or another country. I do so little for God. I'm so ungrateful to him. I should be more like you. You're a pastor. You serve a community. And how do I always respond? You should be more like me. I should be more like you. You're building communities. You build up people. You care for your family. I guess you can compare yourself to me or someone less fortunate than you or someone in a different place than you, but you're not me and you're not them. You're you and God puts you here. Yes, you could always do more. And yes, God might be calling you to a different place and space, but absent of that actual call, take part in the work God's doing here right now in this office, at your home, at your kids' school, in your neighborhood, at your night out with your friends, at your nights in with your family. Sometimes it doesn't require anything more than to shut up and be present with your people. Be who you were called to be there, and just do it the best you can. So let's just take a moment, and I'd like you to think about the answers to these questions. First of all, who are my people? Oops. Who is my community? All of us exist in multiple social circles and spheres, and sometimes they intersect, and sometimes they don't. 
But their family, friends, work, clubs, church, sporting events, hangouts, think of just one of those places, one of those circles. What is your community and who is in it? Just think about it for a second. Now, we're not defined by our actions. We're defined by our God and our faith in him because he inspires our actions. So like Moses and Aaron, how do you bring God's blessing and care to your people? How do you seek their best? How do you carry your censor into the midst of them? Think about that for a second. So I began tonight by talking about skydiving, about living on the edge, about living in the uncertainty. And in the state of Alabama, there's a candidate for a congressional seat named Tabitha Eisner, and she lives in the in-between. As the New York Times wrote about her, she's an adopted mother, adoptive mother, with an expertise in early childhood education. She's a child of church workers, the wife of a pastor, and a pastor herself. She talks about policy in the pastoral way rather than the academic way, she told to avoid voters' hang-ups about jargon. She frames paid parental leave as a matter of family values. And the section of her website devoted to criminal justice starts with the declaration that we are all sinners. Unfortunately for Eisner, even in, in a year of palpable energy among Democrats nationwide, her road to victory is non-existent. Even people rooting for her know she's facing overwhelming odds. She's extremely underfunded and under-resourced, and it's likely she won't win. But Tabitha Eisner brings her censor to wherever she is, and she sets that place apart for God. While her husband worked at a church early in their, in their marriage, Tabitha evaluated early childhood education programs for the state of Minnesota. Her husband said, she said she's like, I see Jesus in fixing school systems. And even now, as she faces defeat according to her secular standards, according to secular standards in general, Tabitha and her husband talk about running for office as a calling, as a religious, in a religious sense. As her husband shared, you're not called to a particular position. You're not called to win the race. You're called to be in it. This isn't about politics, really. It doesn't matter if Tabitha Eisner is a Democrat or Republican or belongs to any party. What does matter is that her faith directs her decisions in every space she enters. And like her, we're called to engage. Everywhere we go. In every place we find ourselves, no silos. No separating our faith from our work or our family or any other group. Because if we believe that God is truly working everywhere, then we have to be willing to join in the work he's doing there, right where we are, even if it's not clear where that's going to lead. We're called to set apart for God every place we go and the people we encounter in our, their own lands in between. So tell me, will you carry your censor there for them? And for him. Thank you guys so much for joining us today.